Welcome to Everything Yesterday This Morning, a 15 to 20 minute daily recap of headlines you may have missed. Come for the news, stay for the snarky commentary. Good morning and welcome to Tuesday's edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I am your host, literally Heather. I am back, fam. Let's go. Um, I had to take a little hiatus between hosting Indiana Apocalypse, my daughter being on fall break for two weeks, and my busiest season at work kicking off. I admittedly needed to take a break. I know I keep telling you that's the last time, but I won't say that this time. I'm going to be unbelievably bogged down between now and the end of February with my real life job, so I will just commit to always bringing you guys a show when I have the time and ability to do so. Um, My live, all of my live stuff, so book club on Wednesdays, Patriots and Petticoats on Tuesdays, Liberty Happy Hour on Fridays, all of that will remain and be consistent. So um, this will just be kind of like if I can get one out. Anyway, with that being said, I, of course, need to start off with a Palmetto State Armory deal of the day for you guys, and we're going to officially make Tuesday the day of the 5-7 rock. I had a chance to shoot this gun for the first time during Indiana Apocalypse, and I have to tell you guys, it's my new favorite firearm. It fits my hand perfectly, it has next to no recoil, and it is very pleasantly accurate. I cannot sing this gun's praises enough. Many people are hesitant to get into a new caliber, but I can also tell you that the ammo for this has become much more affordable than it used to be. It's running about 40 to 50 cents a round. Um, The first link in the description is for the 5.7 that comes with a case and 10 mags. That's only $6.59.99. The second is for ammo. Um, And then, of course, also included is the Caliber Coffee link. I know you guys are buying it because I can see that you are. Please message me. Let me know your thoughts. On to our first subject of tonight. If you live in New York, you might as well live in North Korea at this point because I'm pretty sure that you would have more freedom there. In addition to arresting a councilwoman for exercising a constitutionally protected right of keeping and bearing arms, New York has now decided to lose their ever-loving mind and introduce legislation to require retailers to conduct a criminal history background check for the purchase of, checks notes, a 3D printer. Warhammer nerds and crafters alike are about to revolt, I'm pretty sure. This legislation would also prohibit the sale to a person who would be disqualified on the basis of criminal history from being granted a license to possess a firearm. In the legislation, they list their justification as such. Three-dimensionally printed firearms, a type of untraceable ghost gun, can be built by anyone using a $150 three-dimensional printer. Three-dimensional printed guns are growing more prevalent each year. There were 100 taken off the streets of New York in 2019. That number skyrocketed to 637 in 2022. Concurrently, 
ghost gun shootings have risen 1,000% across the nation. Come on now. Currently, three-dimensional printers allow people to make, buy, sell, and use untraceable guns without any background checks. This bill would require a background check so that three-dimensional printed firearms do not get into the wrong hands. That, quote, taken off the streets language is notable here. There weren't 637 ghost gun-related crimes. They just confiscated 637 ghost guns, or at least they say they have. Also notable is the language buried within the law that states, quote, any retailer of three-dimensional printers sold in this state which is capable of printing a firearm or any components of a firearm, is required and authorized to request and receive criminal history information concerning such purchaser from the Division of Criminal History Justice Services in accordance with the provisions of section blah, 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 law justifying more laws of law of laws. The Division of Criminal Justice Services is authorized to submit fingerprints to the FBI for a national criminal history record check. Fingerprints. They want your biometrics before you can buy a hobby slash craft 3D printer because you might use it to produce 3D printed firearms parts. Next thing you know, they'll put filament on a watch list like they did with the components of like methamphetamine, Sudafed. You can buy Sudafed without drawing, showing your driver's license. My disdain is growing exponentially by the day at this point. Speaking of disdain, watching a bunch of unelected pieces of trash toss around our tax dollars while shitting on us and cracking their whip to churn out more revenue from our efforts and labor to fund their frivolous Proxy wars and money laundering campaigns is becoming exhausting. Talking exclusively to Wilfred Frost, ahead of a meeting of finance ministers in Luxembourg, the U.S. Treasury Secretary said that the economy and public finances are in good shape to ensure backing for U.S. interests abroad. She said it remained too early to understand the economic ramifications of the latest conflict with oil and natural gas prices remaining volatile amid growing concerns of wider war in the Middle East. Those elements were key factors behind the energy-driven cost of living crisis that started facing Western economies last year. Really? Were they? Couldn't be the Federal Reserve printing trillions of dollars and flooding our market with cash and devaluing our dollar at an unprecedented rate, causing inflation to make everything skyrocket in price while you simultaneously shut our economy down for a virus, could it? She pointed to a big easing in inflation, but appealed for Republicans to fill the void left by the removal from office of House of Representatives Speaker Kevin McCarthy in order for greater financial support to flow. We do need to come up with funds both for Israel and for Ukraine. This is a priority, Janet Yellen said. It's really up to the House to find, seat a speaker, 
and to put us in a position where legislation can be passed. (laughs) Yes, appoint an American congressman so they can give more American money to foreign governments. Let the funds flow. Get to work, peasants. She added, we stand with Israel. America has also made clear to Israel we are working very closely with the Israelis that they have a right to defend themselves, but it's important to try to spare innocent civilian lives to maximize to the maximum extent possible. America can certainly afford to stand with Israel and to support Israel's military needs, and we can also and must support Ukraine in its struggle against Russia. Since we are on the theme of doling out American monopoly fund money to foreign nations, let's talk briefly about the fact that the Biden administration has sent $2 billion to Afghanistan since the Taliban takeover following the abysmally executed withdrawal where we left billions of dollars worth of equipment for them to either sell or repurpose for themselves. What was the purpose of Biden's pullout from Afghanistan again? So we could send them money without any inconvenient terrorist attacks getting in the way? After the latest earthquake, the Biden administration is sending another $12 million in aid. The money, like much of our aid, is going through USAID humanitarian partners, which really means NGOs that the Taliban allow to operate. And why do they let them operate? Because when you pay them money, they pay the money to the Taliban, or they are actually Taliban members. It's like the Nigerian prince who sends you the email to tell you that if you send him five $50 Apple gift cards, he's going to give you $50,000 from his recent estate settlement. The Biden administration (laughs) keeps sending the gift cards But the Nigerian prince is not sending his $50,000. Samantha Powers, USAID, boasts that, quote, the United States is the single largest humanitarian donor in Afghanistan, providing nearly $2 billion in humanitarian assistance for Afghans since mid-August of 2021, including more than $1.46 billion from USAID. Abolishing USAID would be a fantastic way to defund terrorists and, frankly, save a lot of money. $2 billion to a terrorist-controlled entity. It's incredible, but we shouldn't be surprised, right? He just gave $6 billion to Iran so that Hamas could murder and rape Israeli women and slaughter their children Meanwhile, the Taliban are doing things like this to American aid workers. Almost 20 staff members of a charity organization operating in central Afghanistan, including one U.S. national, have been arrested by regional officials in the Taliban-controlled nation. A spokesman for the provincial government in Gore province told CBS News, the 18 detained aid workers were arrested for, quote, propagating and promoting Christianity, a violation of the Taliban's strict regulations on all non-governmental groups. According to Abdul Wahid Hamas, the spokesman for the regional administration in the Gore province, 
a local employee of the International Assistance Mission in Gore Province, said on the condition that he not be named that the foreign detained, uh, I'm sorry, that the detained foreign employee is a U.S. woman who works at the office. Has she been released? Do you know her name? Did the Biden administration even remotely threaten to hold up its last cash infusion until she was released? Don't bet on it. Want to hear more about Biden's exquisite foreign policy? I know you're so excited to have your blood pressure blow through the roof of your car before you've even made it to work this morning. So I'll keep going. Venezuela and opposition reach a deal on electoral conditions. They plan to sign on Tuesday in Barbados. Why is this important, you ask? Well, once the deal is signed, it triggers relief from U.S. energy sanctions on Maduro's administration. Venezuela's government agreed to open up the electoral process, including allowing European Union observers and creating a process for lifting bans that have blocked his top opponents from running for president to level what is widely seen as an unfair playing field. If Maduro doesn't live up to his end of the bargain, the sanctions will be reimposed. Um, Mexico hosted multiple rounds of talks in 2021 and 2022. When the sides last met in November of 2022, they agreed to create a UN-managed fund to finance health, food, and education programs for the poor, while the U.S. government agreed to allow oil giant Chevron to pump Venezuelan oil. Colombia and other countries have tried in recent months to restart negotiations between the sides, but Maduro has demanded that the U.S. drop economic sanctions and unfreeze Venezuelan funds held overseas as a condition of resuming talks. Norway's statement Monday said the two sides had decided to resume the dialogue with the objective of reaching a political agreement. On Monday evening, Maduro said on Venezuela's national television that we're going to move ahead with sanctions or without sanctions. If we manage to get them lifted, great. If they're kept in place, we will move forward and we will overcome. U.S. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller welcomed the announcement of negotiations in Barbados and said in a statement, the U.S. government would continue its efforts to unite the international community in support of the Venezuelan-led negotiation process. Earlier Monday, a U.S. official who requested anonymity to discuss the sensitive negotiation said that there is no deal between the U.S. government and Venezuela. The official said that the Biden administration supported Venezuelan-led negotiations and is prepared to provide relief from sanctions in response to concrete actions towards holding competitive elections. The Biden administration knows exactly how to do that. Um, I guess since we're talking about Biden administration deals, we should probably also talk about the deal his administration has reached with migrants separated from their families under the Donald Trump administration. Now, remember, just for a moment, 
In the United States, if you are caught with drugs and your child is present, you are taken to jail and separated from your child who is placed in either child protective services or with a family member. Just remember that as I move through this, okay? The Biden administration and more than 4,000 migrants who were separated from their families at the U.S.-Mexico border by the Trump administration reached a legal settlement Monday that allows the families to live and work in the United States for three years while receiving housing, mental health, and legal assistance to apply for asylum. The settlement also prohibits the federal government from separating any migrant families crossing the border for eight years who are merely violating U.S. immigration laws. Families could be separated only if the parents are considered a danger to their children or the public. Merely for violating U.S. immigration laws, don't get me wrong, I don't want to separate families. I just want them to follow the process that so many people already have to become American citizens. If I were an immigrant who came to the United States legally, I jumped through all the hoops, I got all the money, only to watch entire families get to do it for free. Not only that, they get housing, mental health, legal assistance to get asylum on the American taxpayer's dime. I would be pissed. Apoplectic even. Now this next part is where they really lay it on thick. It says, the deal announced by the Justice Department may end one of the darkest chapters in U.S. immigration policy in which families crossing the U.S.-Mexico border illegally in 2017 and 2018 were systematically separated. Children younger than 18 were sent to the custody of the Department of Health and Human Services, while parents were prosecuted by U.S. attorneys in federal court. But the settlement could be derailed by Republicans in Congress if they challenge the court's mandate to appropriate money to reunify and provide services to separated families. U.S. District Judge Dana Sabraw of the Southern District of California is expected to approve the proposed settlement, but he may be asked to review objections. Those objections could come from parties such as America First Legal, a conservative legal group run by Stephen Miller. He was considered the architect of the family separation policy. The families also sought financial compensation from the U.S. government, but the Biden administration's Justice Department abruptly walked away from those negotiations two years ago when Biden was asked if families would be receiving $450,000 $450,000 apiece, and he said it's not going to happen. Individual families are seeking damages in civil court, though, where the Biden administration is currently having to fight them. While no settlement can ever wipe away this tragic episode in our country's history, the settlement is a much-needed step forward to help the thousands of families that were so brutally separated 
under the Trump administration, said Lee Gallant of the American Civil Liberties Union, the lead counsel representing the families in this case. The settlement will allow children to see their parents after years of separation and permit suffering families to seek permanent status in the United States. Critically, it will also prohibit such a cruel policy in the future. Whatever one thinks about border policy generally, there can be no disagreement that ripping babies and toddlers from their parents is morally repugnant. On a call with reporters about the settlement, a Department of Homeland Security official said family separation was a cruel and inhumane policy. That official added that more than 3,000 separated families have been unified and hundreds more remain separated. The agreement also covers more than 290 children who are U.S. citizens separated from non-citizen parents at the border by the Trump administration who were not previously included in the lawsuit. All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. If the commission of a crime for non-citizens isn't enough to follow the law as it's written, why should anyone ever follow any laws? In the 1970s, there were around 340,000 Americans incarcerated. As of 2017, which is the most recent data available for this particular subset that I was looking at, there were approximately 2.3 million. One consequence of this dramatic increase is that more mothers and fathers with dependent children are in prison. Since the war on drugs began in the 1980s, thanks to Joe Biden, mind you. For example, the rate of children with incarcerated mothers has increased 100%. The rate of those with incarcerated fathers has increased more than 75%. Current estimates of the number of children with incarcerated parents vary. Uh, One report found that the number of children who have experienced parental incarceration at least once in their childhood may range from 1.7 million to 2.7 million. If this estimate is on target, that means that 11% of all children may be at risk. The rate of parenthood among those incarcerated is roughly the same as the rate in the general population. 50% to 75% of incarcerated individuals report having a minor child. So, Are we going to reunite those Americans who committed nonviolent crimes with their children and pay for their housing, mental health services, and legal services to expunge their records? I'll hold my breath. And yet, another huge win on the global stage for the Biden administration, Saudi's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman snubbed Secretary of State Antony Blinken by making him wait hours for a meeting before postponing it to the following day. Blinken's purpose for his visit was to attempt to persuade the Saudis to condemn Hamas and the terror attacks. But Blinken reportedly got a cold shoulder reception in Riyadh, where key key differences between the U.S. and Saudis emerged. In the meeting, the crown prince reportedly called for Israel to halt military operations. 
that claimed the lives of innocent people. After Israel bombarded the densely populated Gaza Strip and imposed a blockade on food, fuel, and other supplies. He also reportedly called for the conflict to be de-escalated. The Saudi position is in contrast to that taken by the Biden administration. The U.S. president has backed Israel's bid to eliminate Hamas in the wake of the terror attacks, but has called for civilian lives to be protected. Blinken's attempts to find common ground with Egypt's president, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, another U.S. regional ally, also met with little success. You mean the Arab nations aren't siding with the weak little Western warmongering man representing the nation that just spent 20 years bringing democracy to the desert? I'm so surprised they would stick together. There were signs in recent weeks that Saudi Arabia and Israel were on the verge of a historic agreement that would have seen relations between them normalized. Analysts believe that among Hamas's core aims in launching the attacks was ruining those talks. Saudi Arabia, well, let's be honest, those analysts should say Iran's core aims in launching those attacks was ruining those talks. Saudi Arabia has long been among the U.S.'s key regional allies, but in recent years, its ruler has sought to steer a more independent course for the kingdom, forming closer ties with U.S. rival China. Last year, a diplomatic spat erupted when the Saudis snubbed the Biden administration and refused to increase oil production. Uh... Because Joe Biden called Mohammed bin Salman a pariah during his presidential campaign. Pepperidge Farm remembers. It's not all bad news, though. I will give credit where it's due, always. U.S. oil, quote-unquote, is back. And ExxonMobil's $60 billion deal isn't even the biggest signal. After three and a half years, a tripling in the S&P 500 energy index and many soon-to-be-forgotten culture war volleys, the U.S. Department of Energy announced October 12th that U.S. crude oil production has hit an all-time high of 13.2 million barrels a day, entirely wiping out COVID-era losses of more than 3 million barrels per day. The news came a day after the $60 billion deal between ExxonMobil and independent oil producer Pioneer Natural Resources. The combination of recovering production, sustained pressure from Wall Street for cost containment, and high stock dividends, and consolidation like the Exxon Pioneer hookup is not a coincidence. Big oil is not back all over America, though. Production is still down sharply in Oklahoma and North Dakota, It hasn't changed much in Alaska, where production is in a long-term tailspin, and offshore drilling in the Gulf of Mexico recovered to $2 billion a day, but has not grown. Instead, the surge is concentrated in the Permian Basin region of Texas and New Mexico, where production costs are among the lowest in the country. The Alexander Ramos Peon, Peon, not sure how to say that, but it would really suck if your last name was Peon. Um, head of shale well research at Rystad Energy. Oil from the Permian Basin costs an average of 
$42 a barrel to produce, he said, with North Dakota in the high 50s to 60. North Dakota is also hampered by weaker access to pipelines than the Permian Basin. I, I wonder why North Dakota has a struggle connecting to pipelines. It could be because Joe Biden cut off access like on day one, where many producers can use pipelines that lie entirely within Texas, skirting federal regulation of interstate pipelines. That's only one example of a relaxed regulatory environment in Texas compared to places like climate-conscious Colorado, the nation's number four oil producer, where output is still down 3 million barrels per month. There's this place called Texas that doesn't really know what energy regulation is, Jay Hatfield, CEO of Infrastructure Capital Advisors in New York. As we continue to piss off the OPEC nations, specifically Iran, we could be in trouble. Gas prices tend to move in tandem with the price of crude oil, which has dropped to about $88 a barrel from $94 in September, driving a $0.20 per gallon drop in the nationwide average price for regular gas. I need to look at what my gas prices were today. But the influence of OPEC, whose coordinated production cuts in June have driven prices 35 cents up, often offsets what domestic producers do. And right now, there's an added uncertainty of whether or not the Israel-Hamas war will result in a slash in production from Iran, whose government supports the rebels who launched bloody attacks into Israel. I believe uh, this is the peon guy, Um, he said, I believe crude prices will stay around the current level in the short term and in the long term should trend down. If there are sanctions against Iran, that will be bad for consumers. Last story of the morning, the sexual abuse accuser who testified against Gillian Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein has died of a suspected overdose. The weird part? It happened in May, and it's just now being reported. Carolyn Adriano was 36 years old and a mother of five children. She was found unresponsive in a hotel room in West Palm Beach, Florida. An investigation was opened and concluded that she died of an accidental overdose. In 2021, Adriano, 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 provided bombshell testimony against Gillian Maxwell, claiming that Epstein had sexually abused her three times. In her testimony, she claimed that Maxwell would schedule the meetings. The sexual abuse stopped when Adriano turned 18 and was deemed, quote, too old for Epstein. During cross-examination, Maxwell's attorney got Adriano to admit that she had once been addicted to pain pills and cocaine and that she did the drugs to block out the sexual abuse at the hands of Epstein. But questions remain in Adriano's death. In an interview with the Daily Beast, Adriano's mother, Dorothy Gronert, said that her daughter was starting a new life. She and her new husband, John Pitts, had bought a comfortable home in North Carolina, were looking towards their future. She was ecstatic, Gronert told the outlet. She was all set up for a whole new lifestyle. 
Groner, who wants cops to further investigate her daughter's death, also told the outlet that Adriana had recently texted that she was no longer using drugs or alcohol. The police investigation shouldn't be closed, Groner told the outlet. I begged them. I sent them numerous messages. I've asked for them to make meetings, contact me, and to no avail. That is your Tuesday edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I appreciate you guys joining me. I appreciate your patience with me. If you enjoyed the show, it helps me out tremendously if you would go leave a review on both Spotify and iTunes five stars. Tell them how much you love me. Helps me out a lot. I appreciate you guys very much. Love you. Take care and I'll see you tomorrow. Hopefully. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. Also, please don't forget to check out shouseinthehouse.com and never forget that free men do not need permission from any government. Have a great day.